Very good evening, everyone. I want to thank Frank again for the opportunity to be with you on these couple of evenings looking at some of the figures from the Reformation, uh, John Calvin, and particularly thinking about some of the lessons that he had for our understanding of the Lord's Supper uh, last week. And then this evening we come to John Knox. I've been talking to a few people through the past week about this, um, all wondering just exactly what I was going to say about John Knox, because um, he's perhaps not one of those figures that it's easy to relate to in a way in which he's going to give us obvious, tangible examples. Knox was a man full of paradox and apparent contradictions. Many people remember Knox as been something like the prophet Jeremiah, maybe someone like Elijah, thundering away, condemning and speaking out as he proclaimed God's word. And just as Elijah drew the wrath of Queen Jezebel, so Knox drew the ire of Queen of Mary, Queen of Scots. During his lifetime, he was denounced by regents, queens, and councils. Knox was outlawed. He was forbidden to preach by the church authorities. In his absence, his effigy was burned in Edinburgh, and there were orders given that Knox be shot on sight. And despite all of that, he preached on. And even after his death, Knox continued to divide people. In the 18th century, they were still burning his books in public. And when George Whitfield came along and started to preach in some of the evangelical awakenings, people complained about Whitfield saying that he had adopted the style and manner of Knox. Some of you may have visited Knox's house on the Royal Mile in Edinburgh. He lived there for a short period of time. And if you go around the exhibits contained in there, it will tell you that Knox really was a blustering fanatic. What would a man like that have to teach us? And those who know even a little about him today probably know the title of his most infamous book, the first blast of the trumpet, it was to be a trilogy, against the monstrous regiment of women. And for many people, yeah, <laughs> that was evidence of Knox's misogyny. Knox is remembered as the man who, when he came before Mary, Queen of Scots, reduced her to tears as he denounced her sins and called her to repent. And so because of all of that, it's no wonder that the Edinburgh City Council removed the stone that marked his grave, and now the spot is reduced to obscurity underneath a car park space outside the church. As in life, so in death, many in Scotland and further afield resented the life and preaching of John Knox. And Knox himself wouldn't really have been troubled by any of that. He wouldn't have been provoked by any of the antagonism that came against him. He always was a man who cared much more about the glory of Christ and the Word of God than his own reputation. 
And yet even with all that fire and passion and conviction, Knox is not a natural candidate to be a Reformation hero. He was a small man who did not enjoy good health. When he was first called to preach, he declined and he apparently ran from the room in tears. In many ways, this champion of the Scottish Reformation was always far happier when he was away from Scotland, be it in England or in Switzerland. He was far happier away from his homeland. And even though this was the man who wrote the first blast of the trumpet against the monstrous regiment of women, Knox is a man who often was far more at ease and much more himself in the company of women than in the company of men. So Knox is a man of contradictions and paradox. But the incredible thing about the grace of God is that it makes weak men strong. Knox famously once said that the Reformation took place in Scotland because God gave his spirit to simple men in great abundance. One of his contemporaries said this about John Knox. Let me read the little sentence. I know not if God ever placed a more godly and great spirit in a body so little and frail. And isn't that what God does? His strength, it is made perfect in our weakness. God takes the timid and he makes them strong. That's how I want to approach our thinking about Knox this evening. I want to take you to 2 Corinthians. Obviously, that's the part of the Bible where that memorable phrase is about God's strength being made perfect in our weakness. But I want to take you to 2 Corinthians chapter 4 this evening and really use that as a way to think about Knox and to assess some of the lessons that he might have to teach us in our world, which is clearly so, so different from the 16th century Scottish situation. So let's bow for a moment's prayer and ask the Lord to help us. Father, please would you aid us this evening as we consider the life of John Knox and what he has to teach us across the centuries. Father, we've thought about him and his paradoxes and contradictions. And Father, we can well understand that because we ourselves are people full of our own contradictions. Please, would you speak to us now from your word? And would you help us to understand these truths, especially as we see them worked out in the life of Knox? And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So 2 Corinthians chapter 4, and we'll read from the first verse, and this is God's word to us. Therefore, since through God's mercy we have this ministry, we do not lose heart. Rather, we have renounced secret and shameful ways. We do not use deception 
nor do we distort the Word of God. On the contrary, by setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For we do not preach ourselves, but Jesus Christ our Lord, and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed, perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that his life may be revealed in our mortal body. So then, death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. It is written, I believed, therefore I have spoken. With that same spirit of faith, we also believe and therefore speak, because we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you in his presence. All this is for your benefit, so that the grace that is reaching more and more people may cause thanksgiving to overflow to the glory of God. Therefore, we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So, we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen, for what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Amen. We thank God for his word to us. The Apostle Paul's writing to us about why people persevere in the work of the gospel. He brackets this whole chapter by reasons why we do not lose heart. And I want to think about why Knox, small, weak, frail man that he was, did not lose heart, but instead persevered in the ministry that God had given to him? Well, here in 2 Corinthians 4, the first reason why Paul gives is why he doesn't give up and why we shouldn't give up in the work of the gospel is in verses 1 to 6. 
And there we are told that God has given us the treasure of his glorious gospel. As the Apostle Paul, what keeps you going? Why do you stick at it? Well, his answer is, God has given us a glorious gospel to proclaim. He's talking over and over again in this epistle all about the glory of the gospel. The gospel has substance and weight to it. It has a lasting glory. You can't see it with the eyes in our head, but with the eye of faith, the gospel message has this brightness to it. It has weight and substance to it. It brings life and righteousness and reconciliation and freedom and transformation. And Paul says in verse 1, I've been given the ministry of proclaiming that gospel. It's as if the most precious treasure in the world has been given to Paul. And Paul says, that's what I've been given to share with other people. Paul had quite literally seen that glory. He had encountered it on the road to Damascus as Christ turned his whole life upside down. And just thinking about the gospel and what it meant was enough to energize him and to fire him and to keep him going in the task of sharing the good news. And that was also John Knox's experience. The gospel took hold of his life and it kept him at it. It caused him to persevere through all that this life threw at him. It energized him. It filled him with passion and conviction. Knox, a small man, a man in many ways who came out of obscurity. But when he came to understand the gospel message as it was preached by men like George Wishart, it really gripped him right at the core of his being. Those were days in Scotland when it was very, very hard to be an evangelical believer. People were being put to death for the faith. Not just the clergy and the theologians, but normal people who professed faith clearly in Jesus Christ. They could be persecuted for it. They could lose their very lives for it. But that gospel message, the message that had been proclaimed by those early Scottish reformers like Patrick Hamilton and George Wishart, it took hold of Knox's life. Knox put it this way. He wrote, Remember that Jesus, the Son of God, came not in the flesh to call the just, but sinners, with hope of mercy and forgiveness of Christ by the redemption that is in Christ's blood. Knox knew this gospel, this treasure, and it was what animated him. He prayed this, Lord, you have sealed into my heart remission of sins, what I acknowledge and confess myself to have received by the precious blood of Jesus once shed. What kept Knox going through years of exile, through stormy days, through days of civil war? Well, it was 
the fact that he knew the treasure of the gospel. And that was something that he wanted to pass on and share with other people. He put it this way. He said, I distribute to others the bread of life as of Christ Jesus, I received it. And that memorable little phrase, Knox was one of those preachers who was telling other beggars where they could find bread. He had come to feed of the gospel, and what caused him to persevere was sharing that message with other people as well. Let's go back to Corinth. Because in the Corinthian church, not everyone had seen the glory of the gospel. And it wasn't as if people weren't interested in glory in Corinth. They loved things that looked impressive. They prized and valued the spectacular. They ended up focusing on things that you could see rather than the gospel message that was proclaimed. And the ministers in Corinth who believed this, well, according to Paul, they had adopted all sorts of deceitful ways. In verse 2, Paul says, these secret shameful ways of dishonesty and deceit, I have abandoned them. I have no part in them. Instead, Paul's mission, he tells us in verse 2, was about setting forth the truth plainly. Paul said, true gospel ministry, apostolic ministry, it is about this clear, straightforward proclamation. Listen to the way that Paul describes it in verse 2. He says, we commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. It's as if he's saying, look, I am open to scrutiny. I've nothing to hide. Look at my methods. Look at my message. I've got a clear conscience. I share the message with people as it is. And in verse 5, Paul tells us that he wasn't out trying to make a name for himself. He didn't try to preach himself and build a personal following. Instead, he laid out the truth of the gospel in a clear and straightforward way because he knew that as he did that, God's glory would be unleashed as he got up and as he opened the Word of God and as he spoke it as it really was. And then back to Scotland. Things were every bit as challenging in 16th century Scotland as they were in 1st century Corinth. Even Knox's opponents had to admit that the church in Scotland was at that time in a sorry state. One of Knox's critics acknowledged that most ministers were, his words, ignorant and useless men, those who, quoting again, devoured their revenues in luxury and neglected their duty. Shameful ways that were adopted by supposed gospel ministers because they had missed out on where the glory of the gospel truly lies. There were two big problems in Scotland at that time. I guess we could really describe them as deceitful practices, practices 
out of line with what true biblical ministry looks like. Two of the shameful ways are described as pluralism and absenteeism. The practice of pluralism meant that a minister would have a number of parishes of which he was the incumbent. And absenteeism was when a minister would reside away from his parish for a time. The reason for all of this was that ministers didn't think that they were getting enough revenue for the work that they did. And so they would take on multiple parishes and not be present in a number of them so that they could get the fee that they thought was appropriate. It was their version of double-jobbing or treble-jobbing. And the consequence of all of this was there was very little preaching. And what preaching there was was often moralistic and lacking in the heartbeat of the gospel. And that's the world that Knox emerged into. And he committed himself to doing what the Apostle Paul described here. He set out to engage in a ministry that laid out the truth of the gospel in a clear, plain way. At first, he was reluctant to preach, but finally he accepted the call to preach with this prayer. Lord Eternal, move and govern my tongue to speak the truth. Knox said too many ministers at the time, they were like dumb dogs, useless as a watchdog. They were there, but they had no bark. And Knox said, my desire is to be a watchman, someone who will lay out the truth in a clear, plain unadulterated way. Well, in 1559, the Protestant nobles in Scotland called Knox to return from his exile in Geneva and to come and preach the gospel to them. That was no straightforward move for Knox. He was profoundly happy in Geneva. He said that the Genevan church under Calvin was the most perfect school of Christ that had existed on earth since the time of the apostles. And yet he answered the call because the nobles called him across to preach the true gospel of Jesus Christ. He said that he was a watchman and that his job was to blow the trumpet and to warn people about the judgment of God and to point them to the hope that there was in Jesus Christ. And blow that trumpet he did. Queen Elizabeth's envoy to Scotland wrote about the amazement that he had that the voice of one man, John Knox, is able in one hour's preaching to put more life into people than 500 trumpets continually blasting in our ears. And Knox's preaching played a vital role in accelerating the national revival that took place in Scotland in the second half of the 16th century. Now, there's no doubt that his preaching was at times confrontational. He spoke with a prophetic voice, especially to those who held political office. But through his preaching, through his laying out the truth clearly, 
the gospel spread across Scotland with remarkable speed. John Knox knew that the gospel message was the great treasure that the church had been given. And his ministry and his legacy was to preach that message in an uncompromising and courageous way, no matter what the cost was. God had given John Knox the treasure of the gospel. But there's another thing that the Apostle Paul says in this passage. He doesn't simply talk about the treasure of the gospel. In verses 7 to 12, he says that God takes the treasure of the gospel and he puts it into jars of clay. In Knox's life, we see this timeless biblical principle. God takes his treasure and he puts it into jars of clay, into weak, frail people just like us. One of the things that really struck us when we were away in Jordan, especially when we were visiting some of the archaeological sites that date back to the time when Paul wrote to the Corinthians, was the fact that almost if you were to pick up any pile of dirt in the ground, in it you would find some sort of little chipped pieces of terracotta, because terracotta was everywhere. It was used all the time. Things made of clay like that, they were to a penny. They were as ubiquitous in their day as plastic and disposable things are in our day. And Paul says here, God takes this precious treasure of the gospel and he puts it into jars of clay, into weak people like us, people with all sorts of blemishes and people with great weakness. And that was John Knox. He came from a relatively obscure background. Very little is known for certain about his early life. He's so obscure that historians aren't even sure of the exact year of his birth. Sometime after 1505, in the town of Haddington near Edinburgh, he was a clay jar. We don't even know for certain where he was educated, whether it was at the University of Glasgow or St. Andrews. He was ordained a priest in his mid-twenties, and his early ministry, it lies in obscurity. Knox was a jar of clay, and like all the Lord's servants, he had his blemishes and his imperfections. Knox was a man great for fighting a war, but he was never the man to win the peace. But that's the biblical fact. God takes the treasure and he puts it into jars of clay. And because of that, his servants persevere. Paul talks about all the things that happened to him. He describes in verse 8 how the apostles were afflicted, squeezed into tight corners, pressurized by things outside of their control. Paul said, often I am perplexed and bewildered at my wit's end. In verse 9, he was persecuted, given a hard time and struck down. And despite all of this, he was never straight-jacketed. Things were never totally hopeless. 
even though he was knocked down onto his face, he always managed to beat the count and get up on his feet again. When God's power is at work within his servants, God's servants are able to persevere even when life is very, very hard, even when they suffer. And Knox suffered. He was captured by the French, and he spent 19 months in the galleys as a galley slave of a French warship. Horrific circumstances, with no hygiene, no privacy, a terrible, terrible thing to endure, something that would leave a permanent mark on his health. Knox suffered. He spent many years of his life living as a religious refugee in Frankfurt and Geneva. And he was a man who readily and freely admitted his fears. And he did that in an age when it was not viewed as a sign of emotional intelligence to speak about your fears and anxiety. Knox's words, I quake, I fear, I tremble. And yet Knox famously said that one man with God is always in the majority. Where's that boldness? Where does that perseverance come from? Well, Paul gives us the answer in the chapter that we've been looking at in verses 13 and following. He says, yes, we're made of clay, but there is hope. There is the hope of the resurrection. There's the hope that because Christ has been raised, his servants will also be raised. That's why Paul can speak of his rock-solid conviction in verse 14. He says, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will also raise us with Jesus and bring us into his presence. That's what calls Paul to fix his eyes, not on what could be seen, but on what is unseen. That's the secret to this resilience. The treasure of the gospel, of God's free grace in Jesus Christ, that great treasure, it's put into jars of clay. People like Knox and people like us, and we persevere because one day God will raise these weak, frail clay bodies that we have and make them into something wonderful and glorious. That's why Paul persevered. It's why we ought to persevere. And it's what kept Knox going. That's why he kept going through all that happened in all the turbulent years of the Reformation. He persevered because he knew resurrection's coming. He said, live in Christ, die in Christ, and the flesh need not fear death. As he lay dying on the 24th of November, 1572, a friend asked him if he was in any pain. Here are his words. It is no painful pain, but such a pain as shall soon, I trust, put an end to the battle. At midday, he asked his wife to read to him from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, that glorious chapter all about the resurrection. 
weak as he was, he said, is not that a comfortable chapter? Comfortable in the sense of it puts strength into you. It causes you to persevere. Later in the day still, he asked his wife to read to him from John chapter 17, all about the high priestly prayer of the Lord Jesus Christ, the great high priest praying for all his own, praying that they would be brought safely home to glory. Knox said, John 17, that is the place where I first cast my anchor. He died that evening and was buried two days later at St. Giles. The newly elected regent of Scotland said these memorable words. Here lies a man who in this life never feared the face of a man. Where did that boldness come from? Where did he get the perseverance? He knew the treasure of the gospel. God put it into Knox, that weak, frail jar of clay with all its blemishes. And Knox persevered because he knew that the resurrection was coming. Just the same reasons that can keep us going. No matter what your work is here in the Bloomfield Church family, it's so often easy to feel in those words that Paul used in our chapter, like losing heart. Just as if the energy to keep going is ebbing away and is about to disappear. Paul says to us, you got the treasure of the gospel. There isn't anything in this life that is more precious than it. So keep going, persevere, and know that the resurrection's coming. Let us pray. Father, for all his courage and fire, resolve and commitment. In John Knox, we see someone like ourselves, a sinner, one saved by grace, a jar of clay, and yet with the light of the gospel within. Father, thank you that it kept him going. Thank you that through him, you spoke your word clearly to all of Scotland. Thank you for his heart to share the gospel with all the people right across society and to those in political power. Father, please may the same gospel today motivate us to share the good news and to proclaim Jesus Christ even to those who might be reluctant to hear it. We pray these things, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. say the grace together. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all evermore.